You're listening to another hope-filled podcast from Life. For more information about our church, visit lifenz.org. It's great to be back here in Melbourne. And in fact, you know, I'm celebrating this year my 30th anniversary of various opportunities. So uh, having lived in Hawaii for years when I was in the military, not serving the Lord Jesus, 30 years ago, God gave me opportunity to go back and put a stake in the ground to advance the kingdom. And we were back there again uh, celebrating our 30th anniversary of serving God kingdom interest in the islands. And it was from the islands 30 years ago that I first came to Australia and to New Zealand and met Paula Marie de Jong and got connected to the Hillsong family and the Christian City Church family. And therefore, 30 years of opportunity coming right here to Melbourne. I don't take it for granted. And having been around the block long enough, it's really cool to see what God has been doing in his people and in growing the church. And not only growing it, but events like the Life Conference are very, very important um, to see in a big picture. A lot of times people think, oh, you know, it's like souped up church service. And maybe there's a little truth in that because it is souped up, to be sure. And yet it's also inviting us into an intentional opportunity where we get to have encounter with God's people and God's presence in a way that probably happens in no other environment. And I think one day history will look back on this season of time. And while we won't remember a hundred years from now, oh, what the messages were and who the hot speaker was and what the flash technology looked like, we, we won't remember those things. But what we will remember and what the future will reap in benefit is that this was the time of unification and consolidation of the church of the Lord Jesus, regardless of history, culture, or denomination, that his purposes could be a advanced in a hostile environment of the world. That's what this is about. It is the consolidation and unification, and it's a unique opportunity that if you've never tasted it, I would invite you into it. Spending my life speaking in conferences, still I am not overly familiar. Every time I go, I not only come to make a contribution, but how much more I receive, even when I'm cynical and don't think that I will. There's always more, right? And so we're going to take a look at that for our lives today, I hope in a way that will encourage. And just also to let you know, my wife Karen sends her love and greetings. Uh, She did not come on this trip because we have yet another very shortly to the U.S. this week. So she's conserving energy, which actually means she's hanging out with the grandkids. She's heard me. But she does send her love to you. And in fact, here's a picture of my family if you've not had a chance to meet us. Karen and I enjoy being married for 35 years. And I love being a daddy. I love being a granddaddy. In fact, put up this next slide. My little granddaughter just turned one. And uh, she's getting a sugar rush there. But... um, Anyway, I I delight to get to have a life of more that I never anticipated. And as you've often heard me say, if you've been around the block with me in ministry, those things I put up there, those images of family, you know, they're not proof that I'm not who I used to be, but they're evidence of growth, how God gave me so much more. And when you consider my history, you know, of, of childhood sex abuse, death of my mother, separation from my father, being labeled, taunted, misdirected in life, the fact that I would ever have a life beyond just hanging on to Jesus as a survivor of those things, that God had more for me than just being a survivor. He had much more in store that I would have never imagined. 
So even if your history is different than mine, our humanity is the same, and God always has much more than we probably ask, imagine, or anticipate. So we're going to take a look at it, but let's pray first. As always, Lord, take these words and anoint them with life and power. Make this more than infotainment. Make it instead revelation that will make your kingdom richer. We believe you would delight to do it as we commit our time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as you can see, I've got my technology here, and there's our board. And uh, if you can kind of follow this with me, the verse that we've got, I'll read it to set the stage for our conversation in what I call your mid-year checkup. You know what happens when we go to church over and over, week after week, when we sing the songs and we hear the sermons and we follow the themes, sometimes we lose sight that all of this is actually serving a much, much bigger picture. And it's useful to pull back and sometimes get a big picture to put today in its proper context. That all these songs, all these meetings, all these services are serving a very clear, straightforward purpose and picture. But if it's fuzzy to you, if it's indistinct or not clear, you could be missing out. And thus we want to align you with this idea of what God is doing for us. So the verse I'm starting off with is this. Jesus speaking in John 10, 10. He says, Satan comes to deceive you, limit, bind, rob, kill, destroy. But I have come that you, say that you, that you may have life and have it abundantly. Now, for first world believers, we tend to get cynical about this idea, thinking we're crying out to God for more money, more things, more name, more toys, more bank account, bigger ministry. You know, we, we, we tend to think in those terms because we are a very materialistic civilization of wealthy first world people who, who can achieve an awful lot in life. But the point is, whether or not one has a Mercedes is irrelevant to having a life that's healthier and richer in value and in healthy relating. Would you agree? So whether or not you think that God will give you more materially is not the interest I'm here to present to you. I do think he does bless us. And I think that he does want to see our lives prosper in every way. But prosperity to God may be much more than the first world concept of material acquisition or personal life achievement. Are you with me? That said, though, God does care about more. The whole idea of God is always about more. The, the, the two little uh, elements of, of, of sperm and egg come together and more is created. 30 trillion independent functioning cells united by a DNA code to become much, much more, correct? And then the little baby born doesn't just stay a little static baby. The baby evolves and develops into much, much more capacity, capability, right? Even the word heaven in Hebrew language, as you may have heard me say, the Hebrew word for heaven does not mean a location that you go to when you die. The word for heaven in Hebrew means expansion, a new state of being of much, much more. Kind of like when the baby formed in the womb is not formed in the womb to live there indefinitely. That becomes constraining, restrictive, and limiting. Where you can't see the father's faith or hear, hear the voice. It's muffled. You can't use your limbs in the way they are designing to be used. But when you are pushed out irrevocably through birth, then you 
enter into a new state of being called expansion. It's like that when we leave life on earth into the life beyond earth, which is why salvation is such an important concern because it's not only the reconciliation with us and our creator, but so that we can move into the life of much, much more after this life, the womb of our immortal experience. Are you with me? So the idea of more is not a new idea that somebody tagged as a conference theme. It is a focusing on a fact that Christ has for us much, much more than we could ask or imagine. Are you with me? This said, here's what less looks like. Less, this is the part the devil gives us. When I came to Jesus through my own personal experience, let alone just the human fact of my fallenness and vulnerability. When I came to Jesus, the less in my life looked like this. Biologically, that is, in my physical body, I had, through circumstance in life, cultivated life-controlling patterns, ways of coping with pain, ways of thinking about myself, about others, about God, patterns that were deeply ingrained neurochemical pathways in my brain that were very controlling. Even when I got saved and I might get moral teaching and know I ought not to be sleeping around, the want to do it remained because while the blood of Jesus washed away the guilt, it did not evaporate controlling chemical patterns in my neurological makeup. Biologically, less had been given to me by virtue of my learning. Are you with me? Therefore, when I think of less, when I think of its impact upon us, I think biologically there are thoughts and patterns and behaviors that I bring to the table of my relationship with God and these are very controlling and often self-defeating. Would that not be like the devil to sow those seeds, to reap those weeds of self-defeating patterns and they are anchored, they are located as biological chemical patterns in my brain. And when I come to Jesus, the blood of Jesus washes away the guilt, but not the memory, not the history, not the vulnerability, and not the chemical patterns. But I can learn to reckon. We'll take a look at that in just a moment. So when I think of less, that's what life had given me. Life-controlling patterns of anxiety, of bitter judgment, patterns of a sexual nature that may brought pleasure to me, but at the same time brought enslavement to me. And so when I came to Jesus, that's what that looked like on the biological scale. Thank God he'll take us like we are, and he just doesn't leave us there. He has more in mind. But also, not only was there biological impact upon me, there was also in the emotional relational area, if you want to call it body-soul, then the idea of the emotional and relational aspect of my life had been impacted. Coming from a history where I had been deprived of a relationship with my mother. She died violently when I was uh, five. And then... Um, separated from my father two months after that, having been sexually violated, I came to the table of my relationship with Jesus deprived of the love God intended. And not only had I been deprived, uh, this had damaged my sense of value and self-worth. Because we don't grow, that is rather, we are not uh, born feeling loved we are born with the need to receive validation. And that is mediated, that comes to us through the pipeline of healthy relationship. Material possessions don't make you feel loved. Education doesn't make you feel loved. Going to a church service may not make you feel loved. The only thing that does is healthy interpersonal relationship that convinces you over and over and over again, you are valued by me. That's what puts the hungry heart at rest. That's why church has to be more than services. That's why 
life invites you into opportunities for, for connect group, for life group, for support group, for opportunities that are relational, that unmet needs can be served because needs do not go away. As C.S. Lewis, the author philosopher said, you'll satisfy your appetite for love rightly or wrongly, it won't go away. Proverbs 27 verse 7 is a profound psychological insight when it says that to a man who is really well nourished, even dessert loses its power of appeal, but when you are starving, even the bitter thing will taste sweet. In modern vernacular, bad love is better than no love at all, and that's why you'll hear people say, in my bar or even in my AA meeting, I can find more communion and camaraderie and relationship than I have found growing up in a religious culture because it's not religion that makes you feel loved it's relationships that make you feel loved okay so we've got people like myself in every congregation who they are saved that's not the issue but they have come with their history their humanity and their unmet needs love not well served will still be very compelling add to that we've got people who've been wounded in my many years of pastoral care before I was an international communicator, there was a season in time where I did my residency of learning, if you will. Twelve years, five days a week, cross-cultural, pastoral care of sexual concerns in the family of faith. And the number one reason why I discovered people struggled sexually as I gathered the anecdotes of their life histories is people are hungry for love, and secondly, they have been very wounded and they are wary. And that's a problem. I mean, this is the relationship faith. And we bring people into, a, into an opportunity here to gather in the name of Jesus and to begin entering into relationship with God and each other. But if there is woundedness and wariness, there will be conflict because it's hard to surrender to someone you don't trust and it's hard to connect intimately with people where you're cut off because of fear or anger, because of distrust and uh, because of histories of exploitation and abuse. So if we get that, how much more does God get that? Isn't that why we hope in Him rightly? He adopts us fully knowing what He's getting into with us, and He adopts us anyway. Proving my maxim true, He'd rather have you messy than not have you at all, and thank God He doesn't leave us in messy. Okay? So if you find yourself somewhere on the left-handed column, I mean, I know none of you do, but just for your friend, assuming you're here listening for them, if you find yourself somewhere here on this left-hand column, there is no criticism. There is no criticism or condemnation or shame. Though many people who struggle do feel shame, and religious culture often makes us feel condemned that we're supposed to be above all of that, but we cannot be more than what we are. But we can learn to bring what we are to the one who can intervene and help us go forward because he has more in mind than where he finds us. So no criticism here, only a recognition, and that's half of problem solving. To solve a problem, you have to see what you don't like, what you don't want, what doesn't work, and where you've been, but not where you're going to go. The good shepherd will lead us to the good place. This said, people are often hungry for love. They're angry because they've been treated with injustice. They want to know that they matter, and they're often very fearful of further hurt, and they have often learned to compensate for their lack in misdirected ways. So the, the girl who's out there sleeping around with guys to try to find she is valuable. She's not a bad girl. She's a hungry girl. She's not just in some rebellion. She's probably trying to find some validation. So this doesn't make her bad. It makes her vulnerable. And God is not mad. He is empathetic. And as he said to the sexually sinful Samaritan woman living with her sixth partner, you know, I, I'm not here to condemn you, sister, but you know what? 
that water that you're putting in your jug to quench your thirst is really not going to quench your thirst. Making a metaphor of the fact that she was putting water in the jug, he was actually inferring that lover and the way you're living isn't your source. But I've got the bread of life and I've got the living water. And if you would know it, big difference between knowing about water versus having your thirst quenched with it. God's approach is compassionate because he is insightful and understanding and therefore we are right to hope in his good character even in the middle of our misadventure. This said, in the realm of spirit as well, body, soul, and spirit, the spiritual aspect must be understood that when it comes to this putting vulnerability into my life, if the Lord God is not the authoritative if the Lord God is not the authoritative source of my security and value, something or someone else will be by default. Humans are made, we are designed to be attracted to a person, a source beyond ourselves. And therefore, if God is not our source, if we do not know him as source, then idolatry is our natural default. It's not an option. There's not like a whole buffet of choices that we might go to. Humans are designed to derive their sense of security and value from a source beyond themselves. The obvious metaphor is mommy and daddy to an infant. An infant cannot clothe themselves, cannot feed themselves, cannot protect themselves, cannot train themselves. And while they have capacity within them to develop, it must be cultivated by someone of greater power and understanding that can help them walk it out over time through investment. Yes? And therefore, children look to mom and dad as a God source. And God operates through that skin for a season. Then, of course, they become teenagers. They take you off the pedestal because soon enough they realize you are no longer a God figure. You are a limited mortal. But what that's supposed to do is help them look up and beyond mom and dad and see the true source. But where people get bogged down like I did is that feeling disconnected from God and that God did not love me and blaming God for my suffering in life. I believed he existed, but I believed he was not good. That meant my natural default was to try to find my value validation and security somewhere else because I was not going to tolerate life without validation and security. Are you with me? In fact, in psychology and developmental psych, it's called object constancy. Parents here who have a, oh, I don't know, a 15-month-old baby experience, you know, that time or season with that child called separation anxiety, where you're going to take your child and put that child, say, in Sunday school, and that child is scared and reacts and doesn't want to go. And um, many times we view this as an inconvenience to our agenda to get into the service or to go on and live our lives on our terms conveniently. But what's actually happening here is the child is saying, I have not yet developed the neural understanding that if you walk out of this room, I'm still secure and valued. And it takes time for that child to become convinced that if you step out of my line of sight... I am still okay. It takes time for this to be grasped. And if it's true for children, what about us with God? How, that's why many times we only trust the character of God when our circumstances are in our favor because then we feel He is with us and all is well. I am thus secure and feel loved by Him. But God stretches that and wants us to know that when He turns around the corner, 
He is still present and still loves us even when circumstances are not good. It's kind of like I believe in the sun even when the rain clouds block it out. It's still there. I just don't see it materially, circumstantially. But that doesn't mean it's not constant as an object. Thus it is true with us and God. We see it reflected in children who eventually do learn that mom and dad still love me and are still present to me, even if they're not standing next to me. Are you with me? So this idolatry, certainly we practice. I practiced it. I tried to find my validation through sexual engagement. And I tried to find validation through acquisition of material goods and achievement, climbing that ladder, running on that treadmill of keeping up with the Joneses, that if I can just get enough and do enough and have enough of this love and these things, then I can feel anchored and secure. But you and I know the treadmill never works. No matter how much we keep up with the Joneses, you finally get your BMW, somebody else gets a Rolls Royce. You finally get your master's and somebody gets their double doctorate. And, and you know, you finally get to move to Turak and somebody else moves to Beverly Hills. It's never enough. No wonder the Lord makes the point. That's not the anchor of your value. I am. So that's the less we often come to God with. Does that make sense? There's no criticism here. It's simply a recognition of what we don't like, what we don't want, and what really doesn't work. And it also limits us so much. Like the Hebrew children, when they were out in the wilderness, they looked back to Egypt, missing the familiar that made them feel secure. And they made the complaint to God facing forward into an uncertain future. They could not imagine. It required them to bank on God, not power at their own hand. Egypt had to be purged out of them that they could receive God's goodness. And yet, you know, they would look back and say, okay, so Egypt did offer us oppression, slavery, limitation, and much, much less of life, but at least we had food to eat. Until that part was sacrificed, they would always be anchored in idolatry. But it was when they let go of the Egypt idea and opened up their hand to God, God gave them much, much more, particularly of himself. Does that make sense? You'd say anything to get through this. So let's do. Here we go. Here now is what more looks like. More, when we cross the bloodline into Christ, that is when we cross the bloodline into adoption, back into God's heart, for now and forever, immediately when we are adopted into the family of faith, these issues may not all be resolved overnight. There is no magic wand. But what does happen is now that we are adopted, He has access and He begins to heal and deal and recalibrate our lives to give us as ripped off, misdirected children much, much more and especially of Himself. Yes? So it may not all be done. Just like birth does not create an instant adult, but it initiates a process of growth, transformation into greater and greater capacity, expansion for much, much more in life. Would you agree? That's what it's like being born again. Therefore, here is the path of discipleship to give you more. When you come to saving faith, if there had been life-controlling patterns then we will move into a new state of re-empowerment. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Word of God. And thank you, advocacy in the communion of the saints. So that where we did not have power and patterns were self-defeating because they were controlling, then now we have an opportunity to cultivate 
responsible stewardship of mind and body. I can begin to retrain that brain, that if I can train it badly, you've heard me teach it, we can train it in new and more powerful ways that do not self-defeat. So that if I'm angry, I'm not going to slap your face off. However, I will learn not to sin in my anger and add complication to the drama. And I may be very, very scared. However, I have learned that when I am afraid, says Psalm 56, God, you are present. You've got my back. You are faithful to me. And I'm not a five-year-old victim anymore. You are present to help me deal with this instead of it dealing with me. When I am afraid, I've learned to trust in your character and capability, God. And so, yeah, I may be lonely, and that may spark some lust. However, when lusting and lonely, well... I don't have to go out and get drunk and hook up with a relationship that may exploit me and cause regret. I may be lonely, and obeying God may not get rid of loneliness. It may not get rid of lust, but at least when I am submitted to God, I don't hurt me, and I don't hurt you, and I don't interfere with God's purposes in my life. Are you with me? So when I am lonely, there are better outcomes I can choose, because I am not powerless. I am being re-empowered and redirected, and I can learn to put off old patterns and put on new patterns. And if I sowed bad seed to to reap a bad harvest, I can sow new seed and reap a better harvest. And the Bible says, therefore, don't give up in your effort to sow the new seed. Because if you sow it, you will surely reap it if you do not give up. Ephesians chapter 4 is profound psychological insight that is true in research about cognitive behavioral therapy and an understanding of the brain that I can put off old patterns. How? Recognize and displace it by replacing it with newer, more effective, not defeating patterns. Yeah, I'd love to go to the bar and get drunk. However, that's self-defeating and potentially harmful to me. Therefore, I'm going to call a friend. I'm going to take a walk and clear my head. I'm going to drink in more Holy Spirit instead of the other spirit, and I will be benefited. That little bit of awareness that, oh, I want that, but I want you more, God, helps me to redirect. Where I'm the steward of mind and body, and it's not dragging me through old patterns. I'm building new ones. Like taking an off-ramp from the old motorway, I don't have to go to that old destination. I can arrive at a very new location by putting off the old. How? By putting on the new. That retraining will get you there. And we are empowered by God toward that goal. That's why practice matters and not giving up if you fall on your face. Babies learning to walk like my little granddaughter. She's a year old. She falls on her face still on occasion, though she's been walking now all of two months. There are days she doesn't quite get it right. And we do not criticize her and say, you're an evil baby falling down like that. Don't you know the will of God? But, you know, at the end of the day, what do we do? We champion her to get up. Because one day, not only will she master motor skill and coordination, because she's designed to, therefore she's not fighting against the cosmic forces, but she's aligning with them. In a similar way, one day, once she gets that mastered, she'll be riding her trike, then riding her bike, then driving a car, then getting married. Dear Lord, how old will I be? But you get the point. There's more in store. So don't quit. Get up and try again. You win the crown, not by running the perfect race, says the word of God. You win it if you don't quit. There you go. Meanwhile, to encourage all of this, we also want to see not only new patterns established, we want support. Sometimes professional evaluation is a very useful investment. Sometimes professional support in counsel or support group. Sometimes friendship and advocacy in the family of faith can do a world of good. We have all these relational options. And some of them may be very appropriate for some of you. 
I also think of healing of attitude. You know, I believe that through better diet and exercise, we can take better care of the temple of the Holy Spirit. And there is wisdom that we should. And uh, God loves us whether we take care of our bodies or not, but there can be consequences if we do not take care of ourselves. And some people need that added support because they've learned faulty patterns, not just in looking for love, but in even navigating life. And so, you know, having come through a cancer drama, coming from a family uh, of diabetics, I've had to learn to pay attention to well-being. And now that I'm 200 years old, I can look back and say, wow, this has really made a difference. It was really worth the grooming of my lifestyle so that I can be here today enjoying stamina and health as I travel around the planet, but also am available to my grandchildren. It's worth it. But you know, even when God may not bring a healing to one's physical body, I find profoundly the healing of attitude. And I think of, you know, you know Nick Vujicic? He's a, a wonderful Aussie who has filled stadiums around the world with his story, where he was born without arms and legs, a congenital birth defect. And, you know, God did not heal his body, though no doubt he prayed, as he says he did, and no doubt people prayed, as his parents would have, for God to intervene and do a reconstructive miracle. Can God do it? Yes. Is God deaf? No. Is God mean-spirited? No. Did God hear the cry of his heart and his parents? And did God still say no? Because you know what? God said no. He does not have his arms and legs, but you know what he does have? He talks of it in his story, his changed attitude. Because maybe more powerful than his body being healed is his heart attitude because he runs rings around healthy able-bodied people he does more for the kingdom of god in one year than many healthy people will do in 20 years or 200 years and it's not what was put back that is his story it's him living his life in spite of what less was given to him due to fallen biology and the DNA blueprint that did not replicate correctly to give him normal arms and legs. And in spite of his lack, he goes out and fills stadiums for the kingdom of God. He is married, he's a husband, and he's a father. And he goes on and has life with what little he has. He runs rings around healthy, able-bodied people. It was his attitude, not his body, that was healed. Amazing what God can do. Amen? Then I think another thing we can expect here in a life of more is reconnected and restored. That is, relationally. This is the relationship faith. This is not a religion. This is a community of people who have experienced encounter and engagement with God, and they are on a relationship journey with Him now and forever. Salvation makes it possible for us to be reconnected to God and for us to belong to an eternal transcendent family through time and space and culture and continent. We are all called from whatever tribe we began to one table in the family of faith in a relationship with Father, but also equally important with each other. So it's not just keeping us out of hell, which is a fabulous perk, and it's not just sending us to heaven, another fabulous perk. It is that we are engaged in relationship with God on His terms through Christ and with one another in a way that is not exploitative, manipulative, uh, but rather is health-giving, life-nurturing and mentoring. Yes? 
That's where communion has often been reduced down to a ritual, and it is a lovely ritual. And being married into um, a Catholic family with a lay priest father-in-law and being a former Anglican pastor for many years in Singapore, I am well aware of the beauty of Eucharist as a symbol and a metaphor. But it is my opinion, and you don't have to agree, but I have the mic. It is my opinion, as you've heard me rant before, that Jesus did not come to institute a ritual. He would insist, however, on relational communion with God and with one another because he paid the highest personal price possible, not for a ritual, but for relating to God and one another in a healthy way. That's why we need the communion of the saints. Not the ritual communion, but the relational communion. Because if relationships have starved me, deprived me, wounded me, and made me wary, it will be God dressed up in the skin of relationship to nurture me, to mentor me, and to compensate me. And that's why we need more than spectator sport meetings. We need interpersonal connecting, communion, relating. Because that's what you're hungry for, and that God knows. Thus he invites us into a pathway of opportunity. So, sometimes we need specific therapy, a relationship form of walking alongside someone toward a goal, a better outcome. And sometimes we need the encouragement of testimonies where we've heard how others have overcome. That sparks hope in us that we too can overcome. That's why we need to share what God has done for us because we all face challenge and to see how others have come through inspires us to hope for ourselves too. And then we also need home groups and we need education for insights like this that we can be empowered and put our struggles in perspective that we are not bad, we are human and vulnerable. God is not mad, he's the redeemer advocate who will restore. And um, that, that all works to empower, reconnect us to him and restore us in healthy relating. Um, then here, finally, We can expect this too from God. More looks like this. A re-encountering of God and a reinstating of God. Instating God's authority as God and source is a theme in Scripture, Old and New Testament. And, for example, Numbers chapter 30. The idea you've heard me teach before about admitting and submitting. The verse says this. If a wife or a daughter makes a vow or a pledge... It binds her and will have authority over her. And even if later she realizes I've made a mistake, she cannot free herself from the authority of this vow. Like words of death spoken, she is limited, she is bound, she is trapped, as is described in this metaphoric story. But, the Bible goes on to say about this metaphor, if she will go to her husband or her father, what does that mean from an Old Testament model? If she will go to her higher authority... If she will go to her higher authority and admit what she's done and submit what she's done, that higher authority has the power to break the power of the vow, break the power of the limiting death that has bound her, and free her from its authority that she can go forward. That's why when I've shared with you before my story of keeping clean in my dirty world, where I struggled with thought life and desire, How the one thing the Holy Spirit said to me changed my life when he spoke to me in the middle of a struggle that had gone on for years. Sigh, why don't you do the one thing with your naughty thoughts you've never dared do before? What's that, Lord? Why don't you admit them and submit them to me? 
In the past, you've always tried to control them and shove them down and in your own power, try to rein it in to show me you're being a good boy. But it doesn't really last and doesn't really work because you don't have authority over what you've given authority over you. But rather than grit your teeth and hope it will go away, why don't you do the one thing you've never done before? Why don't you admit it and submit it to me, your greater authority? Look at what I'm thinking, God. I love that. I want that. But I want you more. Help me. And as I began running to God, admitting and submitting my dirt he broke its power and gave me power over what used to have power over me are you with me that's right in other words if you used to bow to the wrong source the wrong voice the wrong label the wrong master the wrong behavior the wrong activity then bow to the right source and so you see this again in 2 Kings chapter 5 with the story of Naaman who had leprosy and he was told by the prophet's messenger dunk in the cleansing river seven times. Seven not meaning a literal number but in Hebrew language meaning thoroughly and completely. Bring your defilement into my cleansing provision and admit it and submit it and dunk it again and again until the issue is thoroughly resolved. He was healed of leprosy and so was I in my soul as I ran to God Instead of bowing to the old master, choosing to bow to the new. And when the old master calls my name, I bow to the new master who calls my name. Running to him rather than from him in some misdirected shame. Make sense? And then finally here, even when we do mess up, I love it how the story of Peter in John chapter 21 verses 15 through 25. You know the story probably where the disciple Peter at the dinner table He's pledging his allegiance to the Christ after learning that one among them will be a traitor. And he says, I'd never betray you, Jesus. And Jesus says, oh, yeah, before the crow chimes in three times tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times. Peter couldn't imagine it, but he would never, he, he did not understand the challenges that would come to him. And his fear of survival overruled his loyalty to Jesus only temporarily. Sometimes we revert and lapse back into our humanity and our capacity to deny Christ his rightful place as Lord in our lives. It's human to do. And I love how Jesus addressed this. He had already foreseen what would happen. He had already paved a path of understanding for Peter. Look, I know this is going to go down. And finally, Peter did not go looking for Jesus. He was too ashamed of himself. He could not even cast his eyes up to heaven. He was so filled with regret and remorse over his failure to stay loyal to Jesus when he was under pressure. He wanted to spare his flesh. And so in that moment of weakness, the Lord Jesus, knowing Peter would probably not seek him out, <laughs> Jesus was already waiting for Peter and intercepted him. And as many times as Peter denied the Christ, I find it remarkable I find it important and significant that as many times as Peter denied Jesus, Jesus asked to be reinstated. And Peter not only said three times, yes, I want you as my Lord. Yes, Lord, I love you. I really do love you. He not only reinstated, the Lord never held his failure over his head, never threw it in his face and shamed him, and then sent him out and said, now, get back to your calling, which is go and feed my sheep. In other words, your trip up, your effort to save your flesh, 
Your disloyalty to me was only a temporary moment due to your humanity and vulnerability and pressure. And I do not disqualify you. I instead invite you to reinstate me in my rightful place and get back out there beyond shame and condemnation, confident that I'm going to give you more and more for the kingdom will come through you because you are trusting my good character. Align with me. There's much more. Isn't that a beautiful aspect of God's character for us? Even in our sometimes stumble, what matters more than falling down is getting up and realigning and resubmitting and reconsecrating and going on into the much more He has for us. Amen? So on that note, let's pray. Lord, you do have more for us. And none of this is about earning your love. You already love us. None of this is about earning our righteousness. We borrow the righteousness of Christ. None of this is about earning our way to heaven. Heaven is already our guarantee because we are yours. But Lord, you do desire us to become mature and responsible and wise. And you do desire us to walk in well-being and that you do want us to experience an abundant life, not just living out the echo of the past where we've been hurt or robbed or wounded, but rather you want much more health, well-being, productivity, abundance. That's your interest, that we have life and have much more of it. So, Lord, we commit our needs to you, our brokenness and our history. We commit our path to you, our present and our future. And we say, Lord, be Lord over all these things. In your faithfulness, direct our steps. Fulfill your mission in our lives. But especially help us, Lord, to remain loyal to you, whatever the stumble and the fumble, whatever the struggle or the setback. Help us never to give up on the good character, your heart and love toward us that are available because of Jesus. We are grateful for your goodness to us, Lord. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from Life. If you have questions or want to contact someone about this message, visit lifenz.org.